Sometimes one word is all that you have to say. I know it's true as a parent. One word sometimes is enough. There's chaos in the house, right? Running around like a bunch of crazy animals. And all you have to do is that look and you say, stop. And all of a sudden there's like, there's a frozen child not daring to move. Sometimes it's just one word. Or sometimes the word is, really? Like, did you really just say that? Did you really just do that? And sometimes it leaves people stuck in their spot going, yeah, really? Did I just say that? When it comes to using a single word, sometimes you just get one chance. Martin Luther King Jr., he had this word dream. I have a dream. And that word just kind of brought in all his passion and his fervor and it transferred those feelings into the citizens of our, our nations. Just, I have a dream. And what was that dream? And he, he portrayed it and he, it was a picture of that dream of what could be. He inspired his listeners and, and changed not only Americans, but it even changed the culture of our world. It could be even movies such as a one word frozen or Titanic or Gladiator or songs such as Thriller. You know, it's that one word. Or maybe it could be a video game like Minecraft or that other wicked game that my children play. And those, those one words can even change industries. These songs, these movies, these games are just are easy to remember because they are, as Churchill suggested, single, simple, single words. Simple, single words that just carry so much meaning. And I wonder if you've ever realized that every time that you open your mouth, every time that you talk, you actually make a myriad of choices in those moments. Having been a teacher, I know that it requires me to actively be thinking about how I instruct these kids and what their experience of learning will be because of the words that I use. The best teachers are capable of maximizing the learning potential of every student in their classroom using the words of their mouth. And sometimes... Less is more. You can see that whether it comes to parents or to salesmen or to friends or to pastors. Some of you are going, yeah, Paul, maybe less is more. Let's cut down the sermon. Words are important. So throughout history, we have seen men and women use words such as justice, honor, freedom to inspire masses and to, to change the course of history. One word from... President Lincoln, Martin Luther King, Warren Buffett, William Wallace. What was William Wallace's word? Freedom! 
uh, Gandhi or Mother Teresa have enough to seem to inspire our world for a better tomorrow. But the problem with often our world's words is that they are, although maybe inspiring, they, they're, they're temporary. What about the day after tomorrow? What about next week? What about next month? But there are some times where just one word from Scripture says it all. This morning we're going to look at John chapter 19. We're going to start looking at verse 28 through 30. And I'll share with you what is that one word that changes it all. Please stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. John 19, starting at verse 28. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You You may be seated. It is finished. Three words in English. One word in the original Greek. One word. It is only word, and Jesus uttered a single word, tetelestai, tetelestai. He uttered just one word. A.W. Pink said this about tetelestai. It is finished is but one word in the original, but yet in that word is wrapped up the gospel of God. All assurance and all sum of all joy. In that one word, to Tetelestai, Charles Spurgeon said this, an ocean of meaning in a drop of language, a mere drop, for that is all that we can call one word, Tetelestai. Yet, it would need all the other words that ever spoken or can ever be spoken to explain that one word. It is altogether immeasurable. It is finished. It is a conqueror's cry. It is uttered with a loud voice. There is nothing of anguish about it. There is no wailing in it. It is the cry of one who has completed a tremendous labor and is about to die. And before he utters his death prayer, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he shouts his life's hymn in that one word, to Tetelestai. So perhaps this is the single greatest word that has ever been spoken. No other words better show us the greatness of Jesus Christ. To Tetelestai means it's finished. It's accomplished. It's, it's always a, a happy and victorious word, which as we're leading up to Good Friday, as we picture Christ on the cross, it seems like an odd word to say that it's a victorious cry. But it is. 
There's a particular usage of this word that will help us to understand what Jesus means when he said, it is finished, to tell us that. It also means debt is paid in full. It's paid in full. During this time, during Christ's time, when you incurred a debt that you could not pay back, you were thrown into a debtor's prison. They, they would write down the list of all the debts that you owed. All the debts. And you would stay in prison until that debt has been paid. How are you going to have that debt paid in a debtor's prison? You can't. You can't pay it off at all because you are not free. You're not able to work. How are you supposed to be able to do this while you are shackled in prison, in debt? The only way that you could get out of a debtor's prison was if somebody came on your behalf and paid your debt on your behalf. After paying them off, they would take this list of your debt and across the top, top, they would write a single word, one word. And what is that word? Tetelestai. Tetelestai. Debt is paid in full. It is finished. Essentially, they were saying, here's your freedom. Not only that, here is your safety. Keep this as a receipt. No one can ever accuse you of these debts ever again. Here's your receipt. The debt has been paid. It is finished. You are no longer identified by the debts on this page. It is finished. And this was the word that Jesus said while on the cross. Do you see the connection and how it points to the greatness of Jesus and everything that he has accomplished for us? But there's more. Jesus said, it's finished. And to really understand what that means, you have to go back in time. To get the real meaning and beauty and the power of this moment, you have to go back to the Old Testament. Sin entered into the, the world through Adam and Eve. Starting with them, God dealt with the sins of his people with a blood sacrifice. We know that God is absolutely just, and because he is just, he demands he demands a payment for our sins. Sin has got to be paid for. It's got to be dealt with. But God is not only just, he is also merciful. God has provided a way in, in which the blood that needs to be shed is not our own blood, but through the blood of another, a blood substitute. Hebrews chapter 9 says this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Zip, zero, nada, zilch. There is no forgiveness of sin whatsoever. The book of Leviticus, man, you want to do some devotional time. Leviticus, pick it up. It's really like reading. It's dense. It's a lot of rules, a lot of regulation, a lot of payment, a lot of debt. There's a lot of blood going on in there. 
It has a lot of complicated stuff in there. But simply put, the whole thing is about God setting up a sacrificial system by which the blood of bulls and goats are spilled instead of the blood of his own people. It's called atonement. The demand for the payment of sin being satisfied. In Leviticus 16, we, we see the description of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And Yom Kippur is the high holy day for the, the, the people of Israel. It was the day that sin was dealt with. The high priest would take two goats and he would present them before God at the door of the tabernacle. The priest would take the first goat, and graphic moment here, he would pull back its head and he would slit its throat and, and the blood would be shed as a sacrifice. Then he would take the blood into the tabernacle and he would sprinkle that blood in the holies of holies where the presence of God dwelt. And there on the mercy seat, blood was sprinkled. It was to satisfy the demand of God's justice Sin had to be paid for, for these people. He would then come out and he would take the second goat and he would take both of his hands and he would put his hands on the head of that goat and he would start confessing over it. Leviticus 16 gives us a glimpse of what would take place. It says this, And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel. How many? All. And all their transgressions and all their sins. You almost get the feeling that Moses is saying, do you get it? Everything. Everything. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. So the priest would call out sin after sin. And you as the congregation of Israel would be standing around the tabernacle in utter silence. Your kids scream, you immediately take them to the nursery. There is no time for this. This is a holy moment before a holy God. Sin after sin. And as you're hearing it, you go, oh, Aaron called out mine. Oh, there's another one. There's another one. And you could feel the weight of sin become heavier and heavier and heavier. And he's transferring the sins of a nation onto the head of this goat. It was guilt transference. It is where we get the term scapegoat. Leviticus 16 goes on to say, The, the goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. You know, in my study, I, sometimes my mind goes down rabbit trails. I don't know if any of you ever have those rabbit trail moments. But could you imagine being the guy who's leading the goat out into the wilderness and just saying, this looks like a really remote area and that's where the goat is supposed to die outside the camp never to come back again. Could you imagine coming back the next day and you go, He's back. The sins are back. Ugh. 
But there, there's that hope. The goat is bearing all of Israel's sin. He was taken into this uninhabited wilderness outside of the camp. And that goat would die outside of the camp. The goat is walking out into the wilderness until it disappears. And that is a picture of all your sin, all your shame, all your guilt, all the consequences of sin disappearing in that moment, being removed and being taken away from you. The first goat was a picture of God's demands for sin being satisfied. Blood was being shed. The second goat was a picture of guilt and consequences of your, of your sin being removed from you. But here's the problem, friends. It's a picture. It's a picture of what needs to happen. But it actually didn't do what it needed to happen because it had to happen year after year after year after year after year. They gathered every year saying, here's all of our sins, take them away. Here's all of our sins, take them away. Hebrews 10 says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So if it's impossible for the blood of goats to take away sins. How were the people of Israel saved? If it's impossible, how were their sins dealt with? All the Old Testament sacrifices made through the blood of bulls and goats were like making a payment on a credit card, if you will. You go shopping with your credit card and you want to buy this brand new 60-inch TV to go above your fireplace or your man cave, or wherever it is. And you, you take it up to the counter, and you swipe the credit card, letting you take the TV home, right? Because in your head, what happens? You own it now. This is mine. It belongs to me in a very real way, but only as long as you make good on the payment when the bill comes. Charging a credit card is not really making a real payment. Dave Ramsey could help you with that one. It's a, it's a picture of a payment that's only valid, only valid if you make good on the real payment in a future date. Every time God's people would make a sacrifice for their sins, it's like taking a credit card and making a charge against whose account? God's account. Just like a credit card, the, the blood of bulls was not actually a payment. Just like a credit card purchase you've got to make on a TV that's at home, so too these sins were, were really, really forgiven. But it was all dependent. It was all dependent on God paying the bill later on. In full, debt is paid. Romans 3 tells us that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, in His divine patience, He passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the time 
so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God kept his promise to make a real payment. He put forward who? Jesus. He put forward Jesus as the ultimate payment. Propitiation, that fancy word that we see here, means satisfying the demand of payment. Jesus satisfied the demand of payment. The propitiation of Jesus' blood, the only blood that could really pay for your sins. This was to show that God was righteous because he was patient. He was divinely patient with his people by passing over those sins, by somehow having a credit for them on their behalf. So for a long time, because God is slow to anger. You want to talk about slow to anger? Man, God, if I was in God's shoes in those moments, I would have blown it. But God was slow to anger. And his credit limit was really high. Sins were not being dealt with. They were only being charged and charged and charged. We know that if you just make a bunch of credit card purchases and charges, but never pay the bill, you're ultimately paying, doing credit card fraud. But God forgave countless sins through the blood of bulls and goats because he promised one day, one day, he would make the true payment. The all-satisfying payment. But if he never did, it would prove him to be a liar and a fraud. That's why Romans 3 is adamant that when Jesus was finally offered to be the true payment for sin, this was to show God's righteousness. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, right? And this was to display God's righteousness. It proved him not to be a fraud or a liar. It proved him to be the true provider of forgiveness of sins. The keeper of promises. He is just. And in his justice, he demanded the payment that could cover, truly cover, once and for all, all the sins of this world. He's the justifier. He is the one who provided the means. To be just. So God put Jesus forward to make good on that promised payment because Jesus, being the true Lamb of God, could actually pay for those, those sins. Do you remember what, what John said in John chapter 1? The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him. And John, in that moment, exclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God! And he didn't just end there. Who takes away the sin of the world. John saw God was going to make a payment. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away our sins. 
But the Lamb of God could. As the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, Jesus accomplished with Himself the picture of the two goats, all in one. The first goat was killed, pictured to be uh, uh, sacrificed to be a picture of the payment. His blood was shed. Jesus was killed, friends. He was crucified. His blood was shed, not just to be a pitcher, but to be the actual payment for sin. The second goat was taken away, removed to be outside of the camp, to be a picture of the removal of our sin and guilt. Hebrews 13 tells us that Jesus was also taken and crucified where? Outside of the camp. He, it was not done inside of the walls of Jerusalem. He was taken outside of the camp. Not just to be a picture of the removal of, of sin and shame, but he was the actual remover of our sin and shame. So having accomplished this, making the payment for sin, and removing our sin and our shame and our guilt, Jesus said, Tetelestai, debt is paid, and it's paid in full. It is finished. It's done. So we, we could apply this in a million different ways. But let me kind of discuss two ways that Tetelestai ought to change our lives. Here's the first one. Tetelestai ought to change guilt. I don't know if any of you ever have guilt. Anyone? Man, I, there, there's moments where I just feel shame and I feel guilt and it's like this moment is just so crushing. It's overwhelming. I should be doing this. I feel bad for this and man, the sin in my life and the, the guilt just one on top of the other. Uh, my shoulders start feeling pressed down. With, with our sins, we, we rack up a debt that we could never pay. We're, we, we are imprisoned. We are slaves to sin. The list of debt is against us. Every angry outburst has been written down. Every lustful look is written down. Every cheating business deal is written down. Every overlooked orphan is written down. Every word of gossip is written down. Every, every ignoring of scripture is written down. Every failure to love your wife or to love your husband or to love your children. Every time you disobey your parents, it's all written down. The list goes on and on. And this, this is what bars us in prison. This is the list of the enemy, the accuser. He reads it to us when we wake up. You are never good enough. You, you are going to screw up again today. Again. You're going to falter you're going to look lustfully. You're going to say these words. You're going to have anger. You're, all this is going to invalidate what God has done for you. And so throughout our day, there's this underlying sense of guilt and shame about us. And sometimes it is absolutely overwhelming and it is paralyzing. So what happened to this list in, in Colossians chapter 2? Paul said this. You 
who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against it with all of its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So there is a record of debt against us. And it has legal demands. But those legal demands and that debt that is against us is nailed to the cross. Jesus stood with his blood declaring over your list of guilt and shame and consequences. He stands over it and just says, Paul, to Telestai. It's finished. It's paid for. It's done. The cross is my receipt. And friends, the cross is your receipt. It is finished. It's paid for. That's why Christians throughout the ages have looked at this cross and held it to be oh so precious. An instrument of death and torture is now an instrument of hope for us. Our debts have been paid in full. No one can ever accuse me of those same debts ever again. I walk around with a receipt. This changes absolutely everything for me. Finally, I can deal with my guilt. Some of you used to have huge dreams for Jesus, of faithfully following him in mission. Lord, I'll go wherever you want. But then all of a sudden, guilt and shame enters in, and you hear the lies of the devil, the accuser, and you are suddenly paralyzed and hopeless. I can't do it. The enemy starts reading the list of sins against you. My friends, the next time that he does that, next time you hear his whisper in your ear, you say, yeah, (laughs) I know that I committed all those sins. Believe me, I was there. But that list, my friend, is at the cross. That's the only place where that list exists. So Satan, crawl back in your hole and leave me alone. It is finished. It's done. Another way, my friends, of dealing with guilt is through prayer. We apologize time and time to God for messing up, asking Him to be merciful and gracious to us and forgive our sins. We ought to pray like this, yes, we need His grace and we need His mercy. But because the tetelestai of Jesus, we are able to pray something more. Not just for mercy, not just for grace, but also for Him to be just to forgive our sins. Let us ask God to honor the payment Jesus made on our behalf and ask him to be just to forgive our sins. God, would you forgive our sins? And you will hear him ringing in your ears, absolutely, it is finished. 
It is done. There are no chains that cannot be broken. He's the one who breaks chains, cancels debts. First John says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you pray like this, my friends, believing that it is finished, my friends, you will feel the weight of your guilt lift. And you may be able to dream those dreams again of faithfully running after Christ wherever He may call you. But there's another one. To Tetelestai changes the way that we do suffering. When something bad happens, we often interpret it as, man, God is punishing me for some kind of sin, or that evil is winning the day, right? In light of Tetelestai, this just is not true. Tetelestai is a cry, my friend, of victory. It's a cry of victory. Tetelestai is not, we, we can't look at it as, man, did he really mean that? As I picture Christ on the cross, I see him heaving up one last time and not doing victory. But it's the cry of victory. And for us, we have to look at it actually as the cry of victory. A psalm being sung out of victory. Why? Because we are on this side of the cross. We're on this side of the resurrection. And we know that it actually happened. Jesus rose from the grave. He actually conquered sin. He actually conquered death. But imagine being one of Jesus' disciples at that time. The one whom they had put all their hopes and dreams in was now captured. And out of fear, they ran away. They abandoned Jesus. One even showed up in the courts trying to maybe get a little inside scoop what's going on. And they said, hey, weren't you with him? And he goes, I wasn't with him. Like, no, 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 you got the wrong guy. And he denied him how many times? Three times. Every time that he spoke, their hearts would, they'd remember their hearts would just kind of jump out of their chest. There was nobody like this man. His compassion, his love, his authority, his ability to heal. The miracles that he was able to do. There was no one like him. The way that he would speak, the way that he would embrace, the way he would pay attention to the lowliest of people. But now, this man was hanging on the cross. He was dying. And they could hear his breath becoming shallow. And then all of a sudden, he cried out, Tetelestai! A cry of victory. But they were confused. What is going on? This does not look like victory, Jesus. This looks like death. Maybe he was confused. Maybe he was hallucinating. There's nothing that looks victorious up there to me. They were reading the cross, suffering and death as disaster. 
They were depressed. They were scared. They were afraid. The disciples were in a house. The doors were locked. The windows were shut. Mary Mag of Magdalene went to the tomb. And after she saw that it was empty, she, she didn't begin to celebrate, thinking that he must have risen. She walked around crying, asking people, do you know where the body of our Lord is? Where is it at? Did they move it? The people closest to Jesus were reading this as a disaster. But Jesus was actually in that moment, in his moment of suffering, he was saving them from their sins, working out salvation for them. So often, bad things, when bad things happen, we cannot read it as a disaster. We can't imagine something more terrible happening. Some of you are going through some painful suffering kind of places right now. It seems in your life, evil is winning. However, know this. God is saving you. He's increasing your faith. He's making it genuine. Some of you have experienced loss. God is saving you. He's forcing you to let go of the things that you hold oh so dear. He's loosening the grip on things in your life that you are clenching to because you think they provide meaning and life and purpose. And God is saying, no, I am it. He's trying to show you that Jesus is enough. Someone once said, you may never know that Jesus is all that you need until Jesus is all that you have. If the best thing for us is for God to immediately make something better, believe me, He will. If that's the best thing for us, He'll make it happen. He has, he has the new things that you need. Many of us have actually experienced this, and we say, He is a good, good Father. But if the best thing for us is to experience loss so that he can increase our faith and to actually make it genuine, loosening the grip of those things on our life so that ultimately the thing that we hold onto is Christ, then that is what he will do. He is still a good, good father. Friends, he knows you're in pain. but he will still hold you through it all. So, one word is all that we need to tell us die. A word of victory, of payment has been made. One word is all that you need today. It's finished. It's been paid for. And the tetelestai of Jesus shows us that when everything looks like it is falling apart and all hope is gone, God is busy at work in rescuing you. My friends, today 
you can trust that Savior. Those of you who are in Christ Jesus, who have professed Him as your Lord and Savior, He's enough for you today. And hear me say, you can trust Him in the joys, the sorrows, and the mundaneness of life. He's enough. Those of you who are wondering about who this Jesus is, and you're curious, and you, in fact, you're maybe perplexed. The things of this world are going to pass away. Jesus is the only one that will stand. And if he is calling to you today, you sense in your heart that you need to respond. The simple prayer is not a long one. It's yes, Lord. I recognize what you say about me, that I am sinful. That's true. And I have been trying to be my own savior and make it better. And yes, Lord, I recognize that you provide the answer for my debt. And now I receive and rest upon him, Jesus Christ, alone as he's been presented in this good news called the gospel. And Lord, change me. Inside, out. My friends, this is a word from God through his word to you, his people. Let us pray.